Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Page 67, holding the parentheses, the end of the fourth chapter, through the end of the fifth chapter, is all one single parenthesis, and it's a lengthy parenthesis, but it's a necessary clarification for to clarify what the Alter Rebbe explained till now. The Alter Rebbe explained that the creation involves two aspects, two divine attributes. First, the divine attributes of kindness, which is God's infinite ability to create something from nothing. Just like God is infinite, therefore His kindness is also infinite. Only God has the ability to create something from nothing. So that's God's self-expression. And then, if the, and if the divine energy would cease to create us for one moment, if the creative energy would cease to bring us into existence, we would cease to exist. But on the other hand, it also involves God's attribute of, of gevura, of restraint, His ability to conceal, which is also divine. Just like God is infinite, so too His divine attribute to conceal is also infinite and divine and incomprehensible to us because it's nothing less than astonishing. The ability, the fact that we feel natural, that our egos feel natural to us is nothing less than astonishing because it's, it's, not, it's not a logical position. It's, it, it makes no sense. Yet we feel totally natural and comfortable and natural about ourselves, that we are here. There is no reason. There is no rhyme. There is no need for any reason. There's no need for any justification. We have no source. We just exist. Not only don't we feel like light in the sun, we don't feel like light outside the sun. We don't feel, we feel totally independent. And that feels totally natural to us. So that ability that God has to totally hide and conceal Himself is so dramatic. That's, that's the... It's a, it's a divine expression. And He compared these two attributes to the sun and the shield that covers over the sun. The sun gives off light. That's God's kindness with which He creates the universe, creates the world, is a, His creative ability. And then... You have God's restraint, which conceals the shield that covers over the light, over the sun. And to clarify this point, Alter Rebbe adds a parenthesis, because the Rebbe said this idea. The Rebbe explains at great length that this idea, everything that Alter Rebbe discussed till now, leads us to some very, very basic fundamental questions. And that is, if the concealment is merely like a shield that just hides and conceals the light, and from God's point of view there is no concealment, then in truth, in reality, there is no concealment. And in reality, we are an illusion. There is no, in reality, we are godly. Our essence is godly. And from God's point of view, we are godly today. So what's the purpose of Torah mitzvot? What does Torah mitzvot accomplish? God gave us Torah mitzvot. God gave us empowered us to take a physical object and to transform it into a sacred object, into a holy object. But what's the point? From God's point of view, the object was sacred before we did the mitzvah with it. Because the object is nothing other than the divine energy that's creating it. It's God's creative energy that's within the object. The object is within its creative energy, within the divine energy. So it's like the light within the sun. It's non-existent. It's not, an independent, it's not even a dependent existence. It's simply non-existent. Its whole being, its whole essence is nothing other than the divine creative energy. So it's sacred even before we do a mitzvah. So what is the point of Torah and mitzvah? 
if the tzimtzum, if the concealment is nothing other than the shield, it's just a block that just hides the light. The light is there, and the truth is the light. But we say, we can, don't see it. And it's astonishing. And only God has the ability to hide and to conceal and to be totally concealed like that. Fine. But to God there's no concealment. And the truth is that we are nothing other than the divine creative energy. So if we're nothing other than the divine creative energy, then even before we do the mitzvah, every object, is, everything in this world is sacred and holy. So what do we accomplish? What's the point of Torah and mitzvah? And to explain this, Alter Rebbe says that the tzimtzum is not just the shield. It's not just a cover-up. It's not just a hiding, a concealment. But the tzimtzum is actually an entity. Just like, he says, the tzimtzum is a keli. Let's look at the first, page 867. The tzimtzum and concealing of the life force is called, in Kabbalistic terminology, kelim, vessels. And the life force itself is called or light, which signifies revelation. For just as a vessel covers that which is within it, so does the Simpson cover and conceal the light and the life force that flows into created beings. And this Simpson makes it impossible for them to perceive the godliness that is vested within them. Okay, read the uh, 11 on the bottom. 11. The seferit are, comprom- are compromised of both lights and vessels, which are, respectively, the infinite and the finite aspects of the seferit. The function of the lights is to reveal, the function of the vessels is to conceal, to allow light to be revealed in proportion to the capacity of the finite being. So, he's saying that the tzimtzum is like a vessel, is like a prism through which you shine the light. And when you see the light, where it passes through the prism, you see a yellow light, a red light, a blue light. That's the effect of the prism. That it actually transforms the light into a blue light, into a red light, into a yellow light. The light itself remains pure. It's the same light in the yellow and the blue. But nevertheless, the effect of the light, as it goes through the prism, the light changes into a yellow light. Into a, not The light doesn't essentially change. The light remains light. And it, and it retains its property. It's the same light. But the effect of the light changes. You have a yellow effect and you have a red effect and you have all different effects. So the vessel is an entity through which it shapes and forms the divine energy. Just like the vessel contains, contains the light, so too the divine energy is contained within the vessel. Excuse me, the vessel and the, the, vessel and the right. prism is right. the Right, the same, right. Okay. The light goes through the glass. Right, that's the vessel through which the light shines. And therefore, the effect of the the effect of the vessel is that it has an effect on the light. That suddenly you see all these. It differentiates the light into a yellow light, into a red light. The tzimtzum. He's saying the tzimtzum is actually an entity. The tzimtzum is not just a concealment. It doesn't just hide on the light. It actually differentiates the light. That the same light has has suddenly differentiated into a red light, a yellow light. So too, the tzimtzum, continue in 868, are verily the letters of the ten divine utterances, or their substitutions and transpositions, etc., which are the life force of created beings. Okay, so too, the letters are the vessels through which the divine energy, which is God's infinite self-expression, 
God's kindness, which is one with God. It's like God is infinite. The self-expression is also infinite. God's ability to create. But it's God's ability that creates is contained through the vessels, contained through the letters, and therefore it differentiates the energy that suddenly you have a special energy for stone, you have a special energy for light, you have a special energy for heaven, and for all the different items. So that explains how it's possible to get from one source, from God who's infinite, non-differentiated, suddenly you get so many letters. Every object has so many letters, such a diversity, a multiplicity. How do you have a multiplicity of, within God? And what creates the world? Earlier he said that the world is created through the letters. And now he's saying, we just explained that the world is created through, through chesed, through the divine energy, creative energy, which is infinite. And he's explaining, of course, that energy is created, the energy that creates the world is God's divine energy and ability and chesed and kindness to create the world. But the kindness is contained by the vessel, just like the light flows through the prism. And therefore, when the light flows through the prism, the light becomes differentiated. When the divine energy is contained through the vessel, through the letters, through God's letters, so to speak, then these letters are, then the light becomes differentiated. And suddenly you get different shape and different type of, of energies and forces that create the multiple universe that we live in. And each, each, item, each object has its own unique energy and divine energy, its own letters and its own customized letters and combination of letters that creates the uniqueness and the, and the, and, um, the uh, differences from one object and the next. And what, where are the letters from? Continue, and all the letters. And all these letters are rooted in the five letters. It is explained in the Kabbalah, I mean the... Uh... Mansepah are the five letters that change. It depends where it's written. If it's written in the middle of the word, if it's at the end of the word, it changes. The mem is called a shlos mem, a mem sofit, the final mem, the final nun, a final tzaddik. It looks different than a regular tzaddik. It looks different than the regular mem, the regular oh, nun. the five ones that it's change. Like the five ones oh, that change. Oh. Sofiot. Right, you have 22 plus these extra five, but really these are the same five, but just these five letters change as they are at the end of the word. And it's at the, so these letters represent an ending, something that's at the end, that cuts it off, which is the idea of what letters do. Letters contain. How do they contain? By defining it, by cutting it off, by stopping it. Not allowing the light to flow infinitely, it just cuts it off. So these letters are letters that cut off. And they represent, like you said earlier, the five movements of the mouth and the palate that differentiate, that give definition to the sound. Because the sound is just, is just a, an undefined sound. Ah. But it's only when you move your lips that the ah becomes uh, base or vav or mem, or pay. It's when you, when, you, when you use your guttural, you use your throat, that it becomes aleph, a ches. Suddenly the sound becomes defined into letters. Well, these letters are cut off grammatically, but they represent, they represent the, cut, the sounds, the cut, the cut off through the movements of the lips, and the, the cut off of the different movements of the lip, and the, and the tongue, and the larynx, and the palate. And that creates, these are the five differentiations that create the five different categories of sounds, families of sounds. Otherwise, it would just be an undifferentiated voice. Ah, but no meaning. Like the hey, ah. But it's only when you shape and you move the different shapes that you create the different, the different sounds. So this is, what, this is what creates the letters. This is what gives it differentiation. This is what creates words. It creates definitions. 
that are able to contain, contain the light, able to contain the meaning in the word, the meaning that the word wants to convey. The word conveys an emotion, the word conveys what you're thinking, what you, what you, the way you understand. But the words itself are limiting, are limited, they do, and, they are the, and they define. But what is the primary force within the words? These are the mansapach, the last five letters, the ending letters, the sofiot, which represent the five um, different movements that create and differentiated sounds into the five families of sounds. But what's the source of these letters? What's the source of the letters? Continue. It is explained in the Kabbalah that these are the source of all letters. Since they represent five degrees of Gevura, i.e. five restraining forces that divide and separate the breath and voice in the five organs of speech, thus enabling the 22 letters to be formed. Just as the five physical organs of speech divide sounds and letters into five separate categories, uh, labial, guttural, etc., so do the five spiritual levels of Gevura give rise to the 22 supernal letters. The source of the five levels of Gabura is termed in the Kabbalah Butzina Bukar Dedita, which, which is Aramaic for literally light out of darkness, signifying a level of concealment that transcends light. Okay. Now letters are very interesting. We can use the human analogy. Where do letters come from? You know, you can go through your whole life and have no idea, have no clue how letters are formed. How many people consciously think of moving their lips, making sure that the tongue hits the, the roof of their mouth, using the, 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 the throat? It happens automatically. You don't even realize. Do you know people who are challenged, children who are challenged, who have to learn how to speak? Do you know how difficult it is to train someone who doesn't have a natural ability to speak? How difficult it is to train someone to speak? You think studying piano is difficult? You think studying violin is difficult? Try teaching someone to consciously speak. Someone who lost his ability to speak. To consciously be able to speak. Yet speaking is not like playing instruments. Playing instruments, you have a sound. You, have a, you, have, you blow ear or there's a sound. And based on your movements, you make the different sound. Huh? Yeah, I'm saying, exactly. You have to study. You have to study. You, you blow, a, there's, a vo- there's a sound, and then you have to, the way you move the instrument, you direct the sound, and that creates a different t- tunes and tones. Speaking is not like playing an instrument. You don't have to do anything consciously to speak. It's unselfconscious. You just know what you want to say, and you just say it. You have no idea how you just said it, what you just did. The body just does it unselfconsciously. You're totally unaware of what just happened. So letters are rooted very deeply in the soul. Your soul is filled with letters. And when your soul wants to speak, and it has words it wants to say, it just comes out. And uh, that's why children can speak. Little babies, even though they can think, they're intelligent, they can think, but they can't speak yet. Because it's, it's, a, it's a function of the soul. Their souls are not ripe or mature yet. And therefore, they don't have the ability to speak. And that's why words, although words are very external and superficial, words are just a vehicle, just a container. You're just there to move, transport, tra- like transportation, to move something from one place to the other. Whatever you put in, you can put in anything inside. It's just a container. 
Whatever you're feeling, you can put in. You want to express words of love, a feeling of love, express hate, express understanding, whatever it is. Words are devoid on their own. Words seemingly are devoid of personality, a character. Words are just a vehicle. They're dead. They're inert. There's no personality, no character. It's not emotion. Emotion is personal. It's you, your feelings. Your feelings are part of your personality. Your comprehension is part of your personality. Words are something external. You can speak and speak and speak and it doesn't reflect who you are. But nevertheless, words also come from a very deep place. Words are very personal. You can have two people describing the same idea and yet each one will describe it in their own language. Each one will use their own language. And the language they use will reveal their character and reveal their unique personality. You can have two commentaries in the Talmud discussing the same issue, the same logical question, and the same logical understanding, and they both came to the same conclusion, living in two different parts of the world, never met each other, never read each other's words, but just thinking alike and coming. But each one will say it in their own way. This one will. And it, they express their uniqueness. Words is almost your signature of your unique personality and character because words come from a very deep place in the soul. The soul is filled with words. So your particular words, you're expressing the same content, the same logic the same emotional experience, but yet your words have its own flavor. Someone else's words have their own flavor because words have the signature of your uniqueness, of your unique soul. So the soul is filled with words and letters. And what's true on a personal level, from our flesh, we can know God. When we speak of God's letters, what's the source of God's letters? He's saying now that the source of God's letters come from the deepest place within God, so to speak. The place of darkness, so to speak. A place that transcends, just like our soul is filled with words. It comes from a place that's deeper than the conscious mind. It comes from the subconscious. The whole speech is rooted in the subconscious. We have no idea what, what happens when we speak. It's not like you have to learn instruments. You have to learn consciously to move your lips and move your larynx. and move. It just happens automatically because your soul, it's unselfconscious. So it doesn't come from the conscious mind which is the part of the soul that we're aware of. It comes from the subconscious that we're totally unaware of, that, that we're totally in the dark. It comes from a deeper place now, now our conscious. So too, within God, the source of God's letters, of God's words, is, comes, from, comes from, so to speak, the, the darkness, comes from a place that transcends the conscious level, so to speak, of godliness. The tense we wrote of the world of emanation, which are, so to speak, the conscious level of God, they are rooted, so to speak, in the subconscious level of God. In the language of Kabbalah, it's called, as he's now going to say, Atik, the world of Atik, the world that's removed, that's hidden, that's concealed from the conscious world. This is the supernal Gevura of Atik Yomen, the spiritual level of Keta that transcends all worlds, including Atzilu. Okay, so the Kabbalists say that there's, there's the world of emanation, which is the divine world, which includes... God's attribute of kindness, which we learned earlier, just God's ability to create. God and His attributes are one, just like God is infinite and incomprehensible, so too God's ability to create His kindness is also infinite and incomprehensible to us. And then also the world of Gevura, of restraint, of God's ability to limit Himself, restrain Himself, to contain Himself, conceal. And where is, what's the source, which He said is really the kalim, the vessels? And He said that these two attributes are represented by the two names of God. One is Hashem, and one is Elohim. Hashem represents God's self-expression, and Elohim represents God's 
ability to restrain. And, and that's why the Torah says, Bereshit bara Lakim. And the name Alakim is mentioned, I believe, 32 times in the narrative of creation, that God creates the world through the name Alakim. Elohim represents the vessels, God's ability to restrain, the letters, the words. Although God creates through the name Hashem, God creates through His ability to create, His self-expression. But nevertheless, since, the, since God's energy and creative ability goes through the prism, goes through the vessel, which differentiates the light and gives us the yellow light and the red light and differentiates and gives us, differentiates the energy that suddenly the energy is differentiated into many letters, into many different shapes and forms. That's why he says that in the beginning God created the world with the name Elohim. Because it's the, of course it's the name Hashem, which is God's creative energy, but it's the name Hashem, the way it, it's screened through the name Elohim. How is the name Elohim able to, differ, to differentiate and to limit the name Hashem, which is God's infinite creative energy and ability, which transcends the concealment? How is it able to conceal and to hide and to, to, limit, to differentiate it? And the answer is, he's, he explains right now, because the source of the letters, the source of the name Elohim, the source comes from a deeper place. It comes from the, un- from, the, from the subconscious, so to speak, within God. Because the Kabbalists say that we are a microcosm. And from my flesh I know God. It's just like within us. We know we have the conscious self. But then we have the subconscious self, which is the pleasure within us, the willpower within us, which is really transcends the conscious level. That's why the pleasure and willpower is so powerful that it totally influences and tr- tr- could transform our conscious self, which begins with the intellect, begins with the creative ability, and then with the analytical ability, and then the integrative ability, um, and then the heart, the emotions, the, but the pleasure and the willpower, which really have no seat within us. There's no place, there's no vessel for pleasure. Wisdom, the creative ability, has a place, has a vessel, a vehicle. The creative mind, the right brain, the analytical mind has a vessel, has a place. The left brain, the integrative mind has a place, the integrative mind. Emotions have a place, the heart. Your talent to draw, to paint, to dance, all has a place, a vessel. Where is pleasure? Where is will? It's not in any specific location. It permeates all of you. Because that's your, that's your subconscious. It's all pervasive. You can't limit it and define it to a certain area, or confine it to a certain area. It's undifferentiated. That's why everything that you do is motivated by pleasure, ultimately, which leads to willpower. Everything that you do is motivated by your will to Starting with your will to live, your pleasure from life. And then every activity, every specific activity, ultimately, is motivated by pleasure. That's why what's the payoff of everything that you do? A person who thinks, who breaks his head trying to figure something out. What's the payoff? Where's it all leading to? When at the end, when you finally figure something out, it gives you tremendous pleasure. The pleasure is revealed. You sense a tremendous sense of satisfaction and pleasure. And that's what motivated you to pursue, to pursue this, this, uh, this idea and to really work very hard and to exert yourself 
and to strain yourself and to push yourself to figure it out because at the end of the day it'll give you tremendous pleasure. So pleasure is really the motivating force behind everything that you do. So it's not limited or contained in one area. It's all pervasive. Pleasure principle. And the will. That's why we see that people who have very simple minds but are very stubborn. They have strong willpower. They want to succeed. They want to be smart. They want to learn. There were people who were born with heads as thick as... Thick heads. It's only their willpower. That's such a willpower that they just drill their heads. They just relentlessly just push themselves. They would learn something. If they didn't understand it, they would learn it again and learn it again and again. And nothing would deter them. They would even learn it a hundred times if they had. Until they finally got it. And it's their sheer willpower that literally forced them to develop. And they were able to develop and they turned it even into geniuses. It totally changed their conscious minds. They were able to take limited abilities, limited minds, even handicapped minds, and by sheer willpower, they were able to transform and become powerful minds on a conscious, consciously. So you see that willpower is able to transform your consciousness because willpower dominates your consciousness because willpower comes from a much deeper place, a much more primal place than your conscious self. And how much more so pleasure. So in the language of Kabbalah, the world of emanation is, is, so to speak, God's conscious self, God's personality, which begins with Chachma, creative, and then Bina, understanding, and Das, and knowledge, and then God's emotion, so to speak, God's kindness, and God's strength, and God's compassion, and all the other attributes. But then there is the world of Keter. Keter is the crown. It's above the head transcends the mind, the conscious. It's like the skull that surrounds the brain. It's the crown. That's the seat. That's, that's, the, that's the subconscious, which to us is darkness. He calls it darkness. But Sina the Kardanisa, the light of darkness, because we're totally unaware of it. We only get a glimpse of our subconscious. The creative, which is the beginning of the conscious mind, the creative person, has a window to the soul. Because that creative idea that eureka moment when you're puzzling over something and you're in the dark and you're confused and you're confounded and suddenly like a bolt of lightning seemingly out of nowhere suddenly pops into your mind pops into your brain and it illuminates I see the path I see the answer I see the resolution I see the way out and you get all excited and then you take that idea and you follow the path and you develop it until you analyze it and you develop it until it becomes a full-fledged idea where did that come from? Where did this idea suddenly pop into your head out of nowhere? That's how it seems, out of nowhere. Is it out of nowhere? It didn't come from thin air. It came from within me. It came from within me. There's a place within me that I was totally unaware of. That's your subconscious. While you were working on the idea, your subconscious working on the idea. And suddenly, that eureka moment, that bolt of lightning is a communication, a revelation, a telegram from your subconscious to your conscious. And I am which tells us, reveals to us that we have a subconscious. We have a part of us that we're totally unaware of or dimly aware of. The part that we are aware of is just a minute part of us. The essence, the subconscious is way beyond us. The part that we are aware of, our whole frame of reference, our whole world, our whole beginning with creativity and all the way down to action is really just a minute, finite, limited part of us. There's so much that's submerged, there's so much that's hidden, there's so much that's all-encompassing. It's on a different scale. 
It's in a different dimension. It's an all-encompassing reality that eludes us because we think in a very narrow, limited framework. We think in terms of very defined, the right brain and the left brain and the integrated brain and the heart. A reality that's all comprehensive and all-inclusive all is a reality that's infinite to us. And it's darkness to us. And it eludes us. So to us it's darkness. So when there's a communication from that place, he calls it the light of darkness. It comes from a place that to us is dark. It comes from such a deep place. It's an undefined place. And that's a revelation, a light from that place. And that's the source of letters. Where do letters come from? Where do words come from? Words ultimately come from our subconscious. Which is why the whole act of speaking is a subconscious act. We have no idea what happens when we speak. If you had to learn how to speak consciously, it would be impossible. It's so difficult. People have to take, it takes years of training to teach the lips to move properly. And people who unfortunately, because of an accident or because of a birth defect, can't speak properly. A therapist, a speech therapist, that has to teach a child how to speak. It's like pulling teeth. It's much harder than learning violin. It's much harder. Yet speaking is not like learning, it's not like learning to play an instrument. Because it's also unselfconscious. Playing an instrument is conscious. Because playing an instrument, it's all external. You're taking a, 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 you, there's a, there's a wind, and then you direct the wind, and, and you create all different sounds and tones. Speech ultimately is rooted in your subconscious. Your subconscious has, it's filled with letters. And when the subconscious wants to speak, it speaks. And the body just automatically expresses whatever the soul, the letters and the words that the soul is thinking of. So the ability, the letters come from a, much, a very deep place. So the kalim, the vessels, which are the letters of God, come from a deeper place than the revelation of God. And therefore they're able to contain them and therefore they're able to act as a prism that the light, where the light shines through the prism and it differentiates the light into red colors and yellow colors and it differentiates the divine, infinite, undifferentiated divine energy into all the letters that create all the diverse and multi- multiple objects that exist in the universe. Because the source of the letters on the conscious level it comes from Gevura which comes secondary to Chesed, the kindness. But at its source, at the root, it's rooted in, in the level of Butsina the Kardonisa, in Atik Yemen, in the level which is removed from the conscious self, from Keter, from the crown. And it comes from the deepest place. And at the source, it comes from that place. Therefore, it's able to define and it's able to contain and it's able to reveal and it's able to express the self-expression of God, the infinite light of God. And on that level, they're all one. If in the world of emanation we say that God and His attributes are one, therefore just like God is one, so God's kindness is one, His his strength is one, as He will explain in the sixth chapter, how much more so when you go to the root and the source of God's, so to speak, conscious kindness and strength, which is the world of Keter, the world of the crown, the world of the subconscious, the world of Atik Yoimen, which is removed from, from the, the revealed attributes, their kindness and strength are truly one. In the subconscious, in the essence, they're truly one. And therefore, the letters are able to contain the light and reflect the light in a certain way. Well, we're talking about the letters and the words that are only contained in Torah. Yes. Everything is in the Torah. But these are letters and words nonetheless. But I mean, we, we, these are so divine words. I was talking words. to somebody you know, about the, the new Hebrew. You know, because they take English and they, they, they make it into Hebrew, but that's right. not what we're talking about here. We're talking about just the letters no. and the words and the, and the, and the, 
the meaning of Torah, right? Letters or words of Torah. The Hebrew language as it's found in the Torah. And that's the right. So what are the other languages then? The other languages are just objects? The other, la- the other languages are just man-made. It's not divine energy. It's not divine language. Hebrew, and the, especially the Hebrew and the Torah, these are, this is the divine language. These are the divine, divine words. It's God's words, God's letters. So what happens when we pray in English? When we... Prayer, ideally a person, the ideal way to pray is in Hebrew because of the power of the Hebrew language. When you say the Hebrew words, you're actually channeling the divine energy. When you say in Hebrew, you heal the sick of your people, you actually are channeling the divine energy. The rabbis of the great assembly, they had the ability, they knew that with these Hebrew words, Kabbalistically and mystically, you're channeling the Hebrew, you're channeling the divine energy to heal. That's why Hebrew is so powerful. And that's why ideally a person should pray, should pray in Hebrew. But, the, but prayer essentially is, is a service of the heart. And therefore, it's important what you, that you should feel and understand what you're saying. Therefore, um, from that point of view, it may be preferable to pray in your own language so that the prayer should hit home. Uh, because the ultimate purpose of prayer is that it should reach you. It should, it should affect the animal inside of you, you should, uh, it's a substitute for animal sacrifices. It should move you, which is why meditation is not enough. You have to verbalize the words of prayer. So in that case, in that sense, there's something, an argument to make, that there's something superior about praying in your own language, then it's real to you. Then it's really hitting home. It's hitting home, it's touching the animal inside of you, and it's really... Uh, so if you don't understand Hebrew yet, um, you can definitely pray in your own language. In the community, the, the communal prayers have to be in Hebrew because that's really the, the divine, you're channeling the divine energy. That's why the communal prayers, you won't find anywhere a communal prayer, all the prayers are said in English, right? The Kaddish is said in the Hebrew, in, in, the, in the language. And because that's the power of the Hebrew language, the very holy language. I don't mean to go off, yeah, yeah, yeah. If, yeah. if I do, just sure. let me, but in the prayers in the morning, we say, create, creates darkness. So here we're saying that light comes out of darkness. Is it different? He's talking about a different darkness. Okay. He's talking about the darkness that we call darkness because, it's, because we, it's undefined to us. Just like we call creation something from nothing. Not nothing. The nothing that we call nothing is really something. We're nothing. The only reason we call it nothing is because it's undefined. We can't relate to it. We can't relate to divine, to something undefined. We can't, we can't grasp it. We can't comprehend it. So we don't relate to it. So it's not real to us. So we call it nothing. But in truth, it's really something. That's the divine energy that's creating us. That's the real something. We're really nothing. So it's, it's, we call it it's darkness to us because it's undefined, because it's so profound, it's so beyond our grasp that it eludes us. So we call it darkness. That's the darkness that he's talking about over here. This is the highest level of Atik Yemen, which is removed from all the divine attributes, which is the Keter, the crown, which is like God's subconscious, so to speak, the pleasure and the will of God, which transcends the conscious, um, revealed uh, attributes of God. And therefore we call it darkness. So when there's a revelation from that place, he called it the light of darkness, Butzina the Kardanisa. 
And that's the source of letters, that's the source of words. That's God's ability to limit and to confine. I mean, if the language is divine, maybe the, wouldn't the first shot of Hebrew be on Mount Sinai? No, God created the world with Hebrew. So Hebrew, Hebrew preceded creation. Hebrew was there from the beginning. As a matter of fact, I have a very interesting book written by this professor at home where he shows that the source of English yeah, do you yes, yes, is Hebrew. Because Hebrew was the first language. He says the German, you know, who were like the famous scientists of language, who were all anti-Semites, they wouldn't never acknowledge that truth. But the truth is, he says, the only real root for many of the words which they have no explanation for is really Hebrew. And he shows thousands of words which are, it's striking. I mean, it really hits you. I mean, it's so obvious. Because Hebrew, for the first, until the year 1996, Hebrew was the exclusive language of the world. Do you know that in America, Hebrew was almost, almost the official language in America? They were also debating Greek. Greek and they were debating the Hebrew, yeah. right? Yale, the inscriptions are in Hebrew. Hebrew was, 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 they were considering make Hebrew. It would have, would have, sa- it would have <laughs> saved a lot of, imagine the internet in Hebrew, would have saved us a lot of... Uh, there are many evangelical Christians who um, learn Hebrew so they can get a better understanding of the Old Testament. And correspondingly, the source of the various levels of divine kindness is Chesed of Atik Yomi. As is known to those well-versed in the esoteric wisdom, i.e. the Kabbalah, since the Tzimtzum and the letters on the one hand, and the revelation of the divine light and life force on the other hand, both emanate from the level of Atek Yomi, it follows that the Tzimtzum does not affect an objective concealment, as viewed from their common source above. For as previously explained, no entity can conceal itself from itself. Thus, Tzimtzum affects and is only felt by created beings, who because of this concealment are unable to perceive the divine life force that continuously creates them. This is necessary in order for them to think of themselves as independently existing, a state which must be felt by them if they are to tangibly exist. In truth, however, they are utterly nullified within their source above. Okay, just to maybe going off the subject a little, but it's clarifying the point that he's making here in the parentheses about the vessel. He's making a very, very profound point that the vessel... The tzimtzum is a vessel. The tzimtzum are the letters. That the tzimtzum is not just a negative. It's not just a shield, a concealment. But the tzimtzum is actually an entity. The tzimtzum is actually something positive. When the light has to go through the prism, when the light has to go through the, the keli, the vessel, um, it actually introduces something positive. And it actually brings something, something um, it adds something. It's a revelation. It brings the light even into the limited and finite and concealed world. So to help understand that point, and on a more personal level, the Hasidus explains, the Kabbalah tells us, that there are two worlds. When God created the world, initially you had the world of Tohu, the world of chaos. The world of chaos was a world in which godliness was very revealed and God's infinite self-expression was revealed to a very intense level. And the vessels, the vessels were very few. There was a tremendous light, but the vessels were very few. This is before creation. Yes. And as a result, there was a shattering of the vessel. What happens when you shatter, when the vessel shatters? You have precious wine in a cup 
and the glass shatters, what happens to the wine? It spills to the floor, gets muddy. This precious wine is now in the dust, in the dirt, dirty. So what happened to this intense light that resulted in the breakdown? That all these divine sparks, the shards and the content and the divine sparks, fell to the mud. And that's the source of all the materialistic things in this world. And that's why we have such a powerful, animal, magnetic attraction to materialistic pleasures. An almost irrational, insuppressible, unsuppressible, powerful attraction. Something that's not kosher is much more attractive than something that's kosher. Matter of fact, that's how you know it's not kosher. <laughs> if it's so, if it's, you have such a powerful urge and desire to do it, you start suspecting uh, maybe something is not kosher here. Things that are kosher are not as exciting, not as attractive. Um, then, what followed the world of chaos is the world of tikkun, the world of mending. In the world of mending, you have the opposite. You have very few light, very little self-expression, but you had many, many vessels, many containers that could contain the little light that was there, can contain it, and therefore there was no shattering. It was a world of mending. And the source of Torah mitzvah, the source of Judaism, comes from the world of mending. And that's the difference between lust, eroticism, pornography, versus love, marriage. And it's ironic that in the world, in the world of lust and eroticism, there's no intimacy. There's very little intimacy. As a matter of fact, it destroys your ability to be intimate. Not only does it destroy your ability to be intimate with others, it destroys your ability to be intimate with yourself. It's only in the world. It's only in the world of, of love, of the world where there's constraints, where there are limits, where there's self-discipline. The Jewish approach to sexuality, which is that there's a structure, there's a vessel, there are limits. It's only when you live within those limits, that you have the ability, you feel intimate. You feel intimate with yourself, you feel intimate with others. In other words, the idea of boundaries is not a negative. It's not just a shield that conceals. Boundaries are positive. In this week's Torah portion, we read about the temple. In the temple, you had boundaries. You had a machitza that went around the tabernacle that covered the courtyard. It was off limits. You couldn't just look into the courtyard. It wasn't everyone could see into the courtyard. You had a cover. You had a wall. In the temple, in the tabernacle, you had a court curtain. And then you had a door, you had a curtain in front of the door of the tabernacle. And then you had the, the, uh, the covers, the roof covers, also folded over, like a veil. And then inside you had a, a separation between the holy and the holy of holies. So we see that boundaries, boundaries, you find boundaries, even in holiness you find boundaries. The holier it is, the more boundaries there are. Because boundaries are not negative. That's the point he's trying to make here. Boundaries, symptom is kalim. Kalim is an entity. Kalim is not just a shield, it's just blocking. It's not just a blockage of the light. But it's still taboo. No, 
It's not a question of taboo. The, the limitation is actually bring, introduces something positive. Because when do you feel at home? You only feel at home when you have boundaries. If there's no boundaries, you don't feel at home. When all you have is eroticism and all you have is, is, is lust, then all you have is pornography. And you know, you don't feel at home. You don't feel at home in your own body. You know, in all the nude beaches, people feel very uncomfortable. <laughs> Everyone is, everything is revealed, but everything is concealed. When there's no limits and you can do as you please and follow every instinct and follow every urge, it destroys your ability to be intimate. It destroys your ability to be intimate with yourself. It destroys your ability to be intimate with other people. Where the Torah prescribes sexuality, there's no premarital, there's no extramarital, and even within the marriage there are boundaries. You don't just follow instincts and urges. Twelve days out of the month, you're off limits. And there's modesty. How you dress, a woman covers her hair, the separation, all these boundaries. And the holier it is, the more boundaries there are. But these boundaries are actually positive. Because it's only when you have these boundaries and you have the self-discipline and the self-restraint that you're able to feel at home. And, and it's true with everything in life. Look at the Torah's approach to eating. Many foods are off limits. There are boundaries. You can't just eat as you please. There's kosher and there's not kosher. And even kosher, you have to prepare it properly and you have to make a blessing. There are many boundaries. And there's a discipline. And there's a self-restraint. But it's only when you live within these boundaries that you actually feel at home and you're in touch with your soul. When you live a life without boundaries, it's skin deep. And, you don't, and it destroys your ability to feel it. That's the difference in the world of Tohu and the world of Tikkun. The world of Tohu, which is really a world which you had more light than vessels, which was, you had this intensity which is really a world in which God's self-expression was revealed, but very little of God's self-restraint. And as a result of the shattering, it created a world of materialistic urgings and cravings, intense, eroticism, lust, but it's self-destructive. It doesn't lead to intimacy. It doesn't lead to satisfaction. It destroys you, and it destroys your soul. And the more you satisfy it, the hunger you get, the less satisfied you are. And then you need a novelty. To, 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 you need something crazier. You need to constantly come up with something new just to create the excitement because you become so jaded. It destroys your ability to even enjoy it. Even It destroys your humanity. And then you need a novelty. You need to find something versus the world of mending. The world of mending is the world of Torah and mitzvot where there are many boundaries. A lot, Can of, it be a lot of self-restraint. Can it be critical? It's actually a theory. It's not practical. Well, 3,800 years of success could hardly be called a theory. Uh, all the other nations of the world are long gone and disappeared. And the only reason we survived, every one of us is sitting in this room today, and the 40 million Jews living in this world today, is because our parents and grandparents for thousands of years lived this lifestyle, lived the lifestyle of Torah and mitzvot, a world of mending, of boundaries, of self-restraint, of holiness. And the Jew is the one, ironically, the Jew is the one who feels at home in this world. This is so ironic. All other religions teach us that this world is either a maya, this world is filled with sin, and we have to become a monk, or we have to become a nun, or we have to become a, da- a Dalai Lama, a Buddha, go on the mountaintop, separate yourself, celibacy. 
Judaism teaches just the opposite. Judaism teaches celebrate life. Live life. But make life holy. The bedroom is the holy of holies. Eat, but eat. Your table is an altar. Do business. But don't do business on Shabbos. Do business in the kosher way. Your business place becomes a sanctuary for God. Your gold and your silver. You build a sanctuary to God from your gold and your silver and your copper. Because we ironically feel at home in this world. And that's a Jew's mission in this world. This is the whole point of the tzimtzum. The tzimtzum wasn't just a shield that just hides the light. The tzimtzum adds something positive. The boundaries add something positive. It enables us to create a home, to take a desert and to transform it into a beautiful oasis. We can build a beautiful home for God in this world. The Jew feels at home in this world. A Jew's mission ultimately is to marry these two, to take the world of chaos, this energy, this infinite divine, which is rooted in the infinite divine self-expression, intensity, and to marry it with the many, many vessels and vehicles, all the boundaries of the Torah and the limits and the disciplines and the self-restraints. Because it's only when you marry the two that you create a home. What is a home? What is a Jewish home? What is marriage? What is a Jewish home? What is the holy of holies of a Jewish home? The bedroom. You're taking that insatiable appetite, that sexuality, which drives the world mad, and the world doesn't know what to do with it, and has become, and becomes very corrupted, and corrupting, and is reduced to lust, eroticism, pornography, skin deep, which destroys the ability to be intimate with others and with yourself, destroys your soul, your humanity. And in Judaism, it becomes holy. And it sanctifies you. You're able to take this energy within the context of marriage, the Jewish way. And then, the way exactly the way the Torah describes it, between men and women, in marriage, not pre, not extra, with mikvah, with, lim- with modesty. And then, you're able to be intimate with yourself, with your own soul. You're able to be intimate with others. And you feel at home, and then you have love. Love is enduring. Love, the more you satisfy it, the hungrier you get. The more you satisfy it, it strengthens it. Genuine love, the more you satisfy it, the more in love you feel. Lust depletes you. Eroticism depletes you. And then you need something novel to ignite your interest. In real love, when you have the vessels of the world of tikkun, with modesty, the Torah's approach, it strengthens you. Every time husband and wife are here, it strengthens their love, it strengthens their marriage. And it just, it's like pouring kerosene on the flame. It just grows and strengthens and grows and strengthens and goes from strength to strength. It's enduring. It doesn't deplete you. It elevates you. It ennobles you. It inspires you. It humanizes you. So this is the whole Jewish approach. Kalim, self-restraint, boundaries, limitations, actually very positive. They're not, they're not just a, a negative, a, a shield that blocks on the light. It actually introduces something, something very positive. And it enables us to create a home for God, enables us to discover our ability to be intimate, to discover our intimacy. And we transform this world we transform this desert, this jungle that we live in, a place filled with spiritual snakes and scorpions, to transform it into a home, into a place where we feel intimate.
with our souls, with our soul. We feel intimate with our spouses. We feel intimate with the world around us, with Hashem. This is a side question. The hair. The hair, the covering of the hair is a mitzvah, right? It's a mitzvah to cover the hair. And it's supposed to, I guess, is it, is it, is it for the benefit of, it's only something that she only shares with her husband? Or because she doesn't want other men to be attracted to her, that they shouldn't be. Because very often I see many very lovely Lubavitch women who have wigs that are probably nicer than their hair. So, you know, that maybe begs the question, does that really make all that much sense? So this, this is a very good question, because this clarifies that modesty has nothing to do with looking ugly. As a matter of fact, a Jewish woman is supposed to look beautiful. No, but I mean, like, it's not... Like, so modesty has nothing to do with looking ugly. You're supposed to look beautiful. Judaism doesn't put any veils in anyone. We don't try to hide beauty. We celebrate beauty. Beauty, uh, outer beauty is really a reflection of the inner beauty. But there's a sense of modesty, a sense of boundaries, a sense of inner, because the ability, again, the ability to be intimate, the more boundaries you have, the more at home you feel in your own skin, and the more at home you feel. The shadows are something even more nicer than the real hair. Absolutely, but that, that's, that's, that's not the point. Not, that but that's not the point. The point is, it's an inner sense of modesty. That the sexuality that you have, there's a sense of modesty. The Torah doesn't say put a veil. The Torah doesn't say ignore beauty or denigrate beauty. No, celebrate beauty, but put it in context. You have to put it in context. Elevate it. And when it's done within the boundaries, that that, that that sexuality is limited is between husband and wife, and it's not for the public consumption. It's, it's for me, it's private. Sexuality is something very private. It's very deep. It's the deepest part within a person. It's your essence. Nothing dirty and nothing... On the contrary, it's the most godly thing, most divine aspect within us. It reminds us that we have a divine spark. Only God has the power to create, and He, and he gave us that ability... And that ability is in sexuality because it's the most beautiful thing. It touches the deepest place within us. And the, the deeper something is, the holier something is, the more boundaries you need to, to nurture it, to nourish it, and to preserve it. It's so easy to lose that ability to be intimate. In society, when sexuality becomes skin deep, you see it actually destroys your ability. People become jaded. It becomes pornography. You know, eroticism and lust without context. What? Of course there's a beauty. But it's external beauty. The only ultimate beauty is inner beauty, which is reflected in the external beauty. That Jewish woman who lives with a sense of modesty, with a sense of restraint. You think separating from your husband and from your spouse for 12 days a month is easy? It's It's very difficult. Separating from all the non-kosher foods is easy. It's very difficult. But all this inner restraint, all these boundaries, this is what gives you character. And that beauty is in your face. You can't hide it. A person could have a natural beauty, a born beauty, but there's no soul. You look at the face, it's skin deep. There's nothing here. There's nobody home. There's nothing there. It's all superficial, it's all external. But when you see that soul, and you see that inner character, and you see the discipline and the self-restraint and the healthy boundaries that the Torah gives us. And the deeper something is, the more boundaries we have. Then you see the, the beauty, the character, the self, the goodness is written all over the face. And there's, there's a real beauty, a profound beauty. That's the beauty of the Jewish woman. You know, you don't feel at home. You don't feel intimate with yourself.
Most people don't feel intimate with themselves. Let alone to be intimate with another person, to really connect with another person, a soul. Ironically, that is the most erotic. When there's a soul connection, when there's a personal connection, when there's love, that's more exciting than, than anything the world has to offer. If people would know the power of mikvah, they'll be lining out the door. I mean, people today are so jaded because we're so overexposed. It means nothing. Because of all the mitzvot in the Torah, mikvah is the most important. As a matter of fact, if you, a community has one synagogue, you have to sell the synagogue and build a mikvah. Mikvah takes precedence over a synagogue. You can live without a synagogue. You can dive in a storefront. You can't dive, um, but you can't live without a mikvah. Mikvah is the foundation, the cornerstone of the family. No, not a woman. You need a real mikvah. And then um, you're allowed to even sell a Torah scroll. Not to sell a Torah scroll for hardly anything, but for a mikvah. Women have the obligation to go to the mikvah. The real mitzvah of going to the mikvah today is on the women. She's the foundation of the family. And that's, that takes precedence over anything, because that's the foundation of the family. So mikvah is really the most important mitzvah. It's unfortunate. You know, the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Shalom Dovber, when he ran away from the city of Lubavitch, when the, in World War I, he had to run to the city of Rostov. And he told the one in charge of the mikvah, he says, you should know that if there's one here in the mikvah, and because of that here, a woman will be turned off from going to the mikvah, you are responsible with your life. Those are his words. So it's not an option. A mikvah has to be beautiful. A mikvah has to be the highest standard. A woman has to be totally comfortable. It has to be comfortable. It has to be beautiful. It has to be up to par. And it has to be up to the highest standard, something that you know, shouldn't, shouldn't rival the nicest, the nicest so, bathrooms on Park Avenue. Now we know historically. You see how important mikveh is. We went to climb to Mitzada. They were surrounded by the Romans for how many years? Three years, right? They couldn't get any supplies. Every drop of water was precious. How many mikvahs do they have there? Not one, two, or maybe even more. That's how important mikveh was. In Eastern Europe, the women, the mikvah wasn't in operation. They would break ice in the middle of the winter and go, go to the river. That's how important mikvah is. Thank God today we're not under siege. We don't have to break any ice. Thank God today, the mikvahs today, they have beautiful, beautiful, gorgeous mikvahs. And we hope to finish in a few months. We hope to finish here, one of the nicest mikvahs in the Northeast. We have the opportunity to change people's perception of mikvah. But this doesn't change the concept of a woman. Right. She, she is the foundation of the home. She is the foundation of the home. She's the pillar of the home. That's why modesty, she's more in touch with her soul. She's more in touch with her sexuality. That's why everything about her is, 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 is you know, even a hair. You see how much attention they pay to the hair. I mean, men, they wake up in the morning, they're, they're, they're three minutes later, they're in shul. You know, what's the big deal? You, you throw on some clothes and you're... Because it's very much part of them. Every part of them, that the, and therefore... That sense of modesty is, carries over into every part of them. Their voice, they're, they're here. And it's something that needs to be nourished, something that needs to be nurtured, and something that needs to be cultivated, because it's very easy to lose. It's a choice between lust or love, between eroticism or genuine sexuality, between, between pornography or... And that's a very thin line. And you lose your ability to be intimate. And you lose, you lose touch with your soul. It's very refined. It's very subtle. You know, it's very easy to lose. It's something that needs to be nourished and nurtured and cultivated. And that's what the boundary is all about. 
The boundaries that we find in holiness, in the temple, is a model. God constrained himself. God concealed himself. The, the cover of the Mishkan was like a veil over the door. Modesty. And it's not just a negative, a cover-up, a shield. It actually adds something. It's only in that when you have those kalim, those huge kalim, the vast amount of vessels, of limitations, of self-restraint, of self-discipline, that you're able to create a home. You're able to create a sense of intimacy, able to nurture and to be with a sense of intimacy, able to be intimate, able to touch someplace very deep. So it's the limitation that actually introduces something new. It, touch, it allows us to get in touch with our, our essence, with our deepest part within us. That's what he says, the kalim, the oisius, the letters, come from the deepest place within God. Even deeper than God's self-expression. The ability to restrain and to limit is something very positive. It's not just a negative. And that's, that's why what we accomplish through Torah and mitzvot are very real. When a Jew lives a Jewish lifestyle, which has a lot of limitations, a lot of laws and rules, don't do this and don't do this and don't do this, and, and you can only, sexuality can only be expressed in a very limited frame of reference, and, and even then it's limited, you have a mikvah and 12 days are off, and food, 365 don'ts, most of the food is, many of it is off the table, and, and then even the kosher food has to be eaten a certain way, but actually, when we, account, when we follow the Torah and the mitzvah, we change the world. We make this world into a place where God says, I feel at home. We feel intimate in this world. We discover that this world is a godly world. We don't have to escape the world. We don't have to nullify the world. But we reveal godliness. We take a secular object, a mundane object, and we transform it into a sacred object. We take a desert and we transform it into a holy place, a tabernacle, a place where you feel at home, you feel comfortable, you feel intimate, you feel in touch, you feel connected. That's the irony of ironies. That all, for all the people in the world, who are the people who feel the most at home in this world? We look at this world, it's a holy place. It's a place that God says it's His home. We take the gold and the silver and the copper and we transform it into a temple. Your home becomes a temple. Your body becomes a temple. Your business place becomes a temple. So what we are, we're accomplishing something very real here. It's not an illusion. What we are doing and accomplishing is we're accomplishing something tremendous. Something fantastic. Something incredible. Something divine. Which we are accomplishing through our choices, through our limitations, through our restraint, through our overcoming difficulties, through following the Torah and the mitzvah, the boundaries, the many boundaries of mitzvah and Torah, of modesty, and all the boundaries of the Torah. We bring in holiness into the world. And satisfaction. And intimacy. And love. And all the good things in life. All the wonderful things in life. While if you just follow the path of intense, intensity, lust, eroticism, it self-destructs. It destroys your ability to be intimate. It destroys your soul. It destroys you. And then you just need the next fix. You just need something more outrageous, something more novel to excite you because you've lost your ability to really enjoy life and live life. That's the irony of ironies. The observant Jew who follows the Torah Mitzvah is having the best life. Lessons in Tanya, taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. For more Tanya study, please visit our website at www.lessonsintanya.com.